Okay, y'all, this is fun. You know that we need help of advertisers in order to support our show. Here's what. We want to make sure that the advertisers that we bring in are ones that you actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash Andy and take a quick anonymous survey that'll help us get to know you, our listeners, better. That way we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once we've once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash A-N-D-Y. Thanks for your help. Hi there, everyone. It's four o'clock in the east. Any moment now, authorities will provide an update on the mass shooting in Highland Park, Illinois, where the most uniquely American holiday celebration was marred by the most uniquely American epidemic, the devastating scourge of gun violence. This suburban Chicago community is now reeling from a massacre at a 4th of July parade. Here's how their hometown paper, the Chicago Tribune, describes what happened yesterday. Quote, on an idyllic summer morning from a rooftop high above the Highland Park Independence Day parade, a gunman aimed down at the floats and lawn chairs and strollers and opened fire. The high school marching band's members sprinted for their lives, still carrying their flutes and saxophones. Bystanders scooped up young children and fled. In all, six people were killed. Some two dozen others were injured, either by rifle fire or in a stampede away from the scene. The victims range in age from 8 to 85. Just hours ago, officials announced that a seventh person has lost their life. The deceased include a 76-year-old grandfather named Nicholas Toledo, The New York Times reports this about him. Toledo did not want to attend the Highland Park Fourth of July parade, but his disabilities required that he be around someone full time. And the family wasn't going to skip the parade, even going so far as to position chairs for a choice viewing spot at midnight the night before. Mr. Toledo was sitting in his wheelchair along the parade route between his son and a nephew when the bullets started flying. More than eight hours after the shooting, North Chicago police arrested the man believed to be behind the massacre. You can see him here being taken into custody. It was after what police describe as a short pursuit. The investigation, which police caution is in its early stages, is now facing mountains of questions, including how the shooter pulled off such a devastating attack and why he did it. Police say they have yet to determine a motive. They describe the targets of the shooting this way, quote, completely random with no indications that the shooting was racially or religiously motivated. At a press conference today, officials say that the shooter purchased multiple weapons legally prior to the shooting. The gun used in Monday's attack is described by authorities this way as a high-powered rifle similar to an AR-15. It was actually left on the scene. It was the primary piece of evidence tracing police back to the shooter. Police also said that the suspect had been planning yesterday's attack for weeks, and they added this. During the attack, Primo was dressed in woman's clothing, and investigators do believe he did this to conceal his facial tattoos and his identity and help him during the escape uh, with the other people who were fleeing the chaos. During the attack, we believe that Primo fired more than 70 rounds from this rifle into the crowd of innocent people. Following the attack, Primo exited the roof, he dropped his rifle, and he blended in with the crowd, and he escaped. Uh, He walked to his mother's home, who lived in the area, 
and he blended right in with everybody else as they were running around, almost as he was uh, an innocent spectator as well. It's where we start our coverage today. MSNBC senior national correspondent and anchor Chris Jansen is live in Highland Park, Illinois, for us today. Also joining us, NBC News investigations correspondent Tom Winter, the former senator and MSNBC political analyst Claire McCaskill's here, and Pete Strzok joins us, former FBI counterintelligence agent. Um, Chris, I want to ask you, I watched your um, hours that you've anchored and you're on the scene. Tell us about what we know about both the victims and the survivors today. So I think I'll start because you mentioned the Chicago Tribune with this uh, headline because it says holiday horror and you see that there's a police officer who is covering uh, his face. He cannot believe clearly what he saw, nor can any of the people that I've talked to here. Uh, Some of the victims, the injured, were as young as eight years old. Um, There were victims who were killed who were as old as 88. A man who every day still went into the office and did his job. This is not a community, Nicole, where people come expecting this in one way. They come here because it's safe. There have been two murders here in the last two decades. This is a community that almost a decade ago passed a ban on the kind of weapons that police say were used in the shooting that happened just a block down from where I'm standing. You can still see the crime tape. But there is a a sea change that I have seen since 1999 when I began covering school shootings at Columbine. In those years right after, people in communities like this would always say to me, I can't believe it happened here. That's not what they say anymore. What they say is what I heard from Larry Bloom, a resident who, like so many years before this, came to the parade yesterday. Take a listen, Nicole. This is something that I every year I've just I I thought I can't believe this has not happened here yet based on the temperature of this country. And and some of the demographics of our town kind of invites that and uh, uh, that that type of uh, activity. And uh, and it's the fact that, uh, you know, we all came out. It's a town full of people that come out in an appreciated day. And pretty much anyone within about 50 feet of me were likely to be murdered or seriously injured uh, because somebody uh, was, uh, had the firepower that no, no civilian should have. If you stood under that and not knowing where all that was coming from, there's, uh, there's no reasonable person who would think that that is something that a civilian should have. That type of power and, and delivery system of that type of power. You sound angry. It's, it's very, it's, it's upsetting. This, I, again, it's, it's unbelievable and believable that we're, we're doing this. And you can understand the anger when you hear the testimonials of people like mother who grabbed a, a two-year-old toddler who she said was covered in blood. When you talk to the parents who parent after parent after parent in the hours after this said it was their child who told them what to do. Their kids have it so ingrained in them, this active shooter training. And in fact, I talked to another local resident, Nicole, who said to me last night, after grabbing his seven-year-old twins and bringing them to safety, at three o'clock in the morning, his son woke up having had a nightmare and said, Daddy, someone is trying to kill me. Help me. A seven-year-old boy. And then said he wanted to meet the shooter because maybe then he could help him understand that what he did was bad. It is one thing to have active shooter training. 
and teach children how to deal with this situation, how to deal with the aftermath is another thing altogether. And that is what this community is dealing with at this hour, Nicole. It's an amazing sea change, um, Chris, to be on the ground and for people to say not, I can't believe it happened here, but it was a matter of time. It's just a remarkable commentary on, on the collective failure to protect even the most innocent and innocuous gatherings. Were, were there any, any talks today about canceling this parade or about increasing security around other soft targets in the town? Well, there were immediately other things in other communities were canceled. There was a, a terror that went through this entire area. Uh, folks know this place. They know it's safe. And so there were beaches, Nicole, that were closed. There were other fireworks that didn't go off. Other community gatherings that were immediately canceled because suddenly you're reminded that even though it's Independence Day, even though it's a day of celebration, it's always a threat now, it seems. People worry to get to any place where there's going to be a large gathering of people. And so, yes, a lot of people here are saying, you know, I can't believe that we still live in a country where there is not a recognition that all of these places are potentially targets. We live in a country where there are more guns than there are people. And again, this is a town that is definitely democratic. As several people said to me today, we lean toward the more liberal democratic, but they, as one person said to me, you don't have to be that person to ask the question, why are we in a country where weapons of war are so readily available? These were, we believe, legally purchased weapons and where a doctor who had to treat the wounded and the dead said that these were indeed war wounds. Tom Winter, we are moments away from an update from law enforcement on the ground there. Tell us what we have learned so far and what we expect to hear at this news conference starting a few minutes from now. Sure. Well, I think we're, we're probably getting close to some charging decisions in this case. Uh, you don't have to be a law enforcement reporter uh, to figure out that we're probably looking at seven counts of homicide here. Uh, we know that seven people are now unfortunately dead with a, a seventh person dying today. Um, obviously, weapons charges are a possibility. This uh, the town uh, does have a uh, an assault rifle ban. And so perhaps there's going to be charges there, believed to be misdemeanor uh, charges that uh, that can be brought. So those are the types of things that we might get if they decide to charge today, though we did learn uh, from our last briefing that this uh, this person uh, who's referred to um, is uh, is Robert or Bobby Cremo, uh, that he has been speaking with police. And so if that dialogue is ongoing, there's no reason to charge somebody and to stop that. Uh, we don't know to the extent of which he may or may not be cooperating. We do know that he purchased several weapons in the last several years, all legally, according to police. Uh, that was, as you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, one of the kind of primary clues or pieces of evidence they were, they were able to use uh, to be able to 
to figure out who did this because he dressed in disguise as a woman uh, wearing potentially, and you're looking at the image right there, uh, potentially some sort of a of a wig, uh, definitely uh, different types of uh, clothing, and appears to have taken uh, steps to uh, apply makeup or, or do something to uh, take away, or at least uh, conceal, I should say, the uh, tattoos that he does have on his face. So uh, that's something police say that he did to evade capture uh, so that he could blend in with the crowd after he climbed up on top of this building and began firing. They say it was an effort uh, and a plan that had been in uh, motion for at least several weeks uh, to conduct this attack. Uh, and as you noted, is not something, according to law enforcement, at least at this stage of the investigation, I think it's important to note that given the, the enormous volume of social media posts, uh, information that's online, information that may be on his uh, phone or phones, information that could be on computers. We just don't know yet. And according to police, they don't know yet the totality of information and things that he may have written or published or videos he could have put together uh, that exist. And so until that is known, uh, it's not yet known whether or not there's anything on there that points us towards a hate crime or some of uh, other ideologically driven crime. But at least at the moment, there's no indication of that, Nicole. So I think more clarity as far as what he's telling them, uh, this idea of a uh, cell phone uh, that may have been left behind in Madison, Wisconsin, was did he drive there, uh, put that there after the shooting in an effort to throw off police? Uh, that would be something that would be interesting to get more detail on. Uh, so that's some of the things that we're, we're still working on. So that's where I think this investigation stands at this point is what is he saying? To what extent is he cooperating? And when are we going to get those charges? That's what's, uh, that's what's ahead of us uh, as far as developments. Uh, no sort of motive that will come out, of course, will make any sense uh, to the rest of us or certainly the people in that community uh, as far as why this happened at a uh, hometown, very Americana Fourth of July parade. Nicole. Pete Strzok, um, Chris and Tom are often two of the first journalists at our network on the scene of a mass shooting. Um, but there is nothing routine about covering a, a terrorized town. Um, some of the questions, though, have become routine. And I want to show you some of the journalists posing them about whether or not um, signs were missed, whether or not the shooter's social media profile is something that should have been um, handled differently. Let, let me show you some of that Q&A. seen disturbing videos online. Were, more, were warning signs missed? The question was, there's disturbing videos online that have been seen. Uh, we are reviewing those. Those are going to be a part of any investigation uh, efforts by our task force investigators, Highland Park Police. We'll look at them and we'll see what they reveal. Considering the extensive digital trail, the disturbing videos, the amount of views garnered, was he known to law enforcement beforehand? And if not, why not? I can't get into that right now. There have been some law enforcement contacts, nothing of a violent nature. I can't get into the specifics of the context. Pete Strzok, just talk about what a suspect like this, how they register on, on law enforcement, local law enforcement in this case's radar, and what can be done to prevent something. Obviously, there weren't enough tools in the toolbox to prevent yesterday's tragedy, but I, I wonder how many people like this suspect are out there. 
Well, Nicole, I think it's a pretty daunting problem. I mean, the reality is if you look at social media and if you look at the type of personality that manifests this sort of behavior, I think there is far more material than there are federal law enforcement officers, state and local law enforcement officers who are able to review that. And the second thing is, I don't know, given the First Amendment as a society, we want that level of invasive governmental look into what people are or are not doing online. But all of this discussion is talking about treating the symptoms. The fact of the matter is we have made, nobody should be surprised and nobody should think it is hard to do something that this suspect did. We have made it easier in the United States to buy a weapon than it is to go to your local animal shelter and adapt a pet. The fact is that he, like many of these other folks we're seeing, these sort of socially alienated 18, 19, 22 year old, awkward white males go into gun shops, lawfully buy, again, not handguns, not a, you know, musket, but a weapon designed starting in the Vietnam War to be a weapon of war, buy that legally, and in some cases then turn around some with planning, some without, and are able to do it. So I don't, I'm not surprised that when people look and see posts on social media or YouTube videos looking at violence when there are folks that it looks like there clearly was some sort of police interaction, perhaps, you know, a, not of a violent nature, but of some sort of other disturbance. I'm not surprised we see that. I wouldn't be surprised to find out more, but I don't think focusing on that, we can have as many red flag laws as we want. We can augment mental health programs as much as we want. But at the end of the day, all that is doing is treating the symptoms. The root issue here is the red access to guns and in particular the ready access to assault weapons that were designed to be used on a battlefield to kill as many people as possible. Claire McCaskill, um, we choose to live like this. Uh, these are our choices. We send people to Congress um, and to the United States Senate who vote this way. This is a choice that was affirmed um, in the 2020 election with every Republican that was sent back. And this is a choice that's very much on the line in November. Um, how do we hold the people who represent us accountable for what is now a country where you can't go to church, can't go to the grocery store, you can't take your children to a 4th of July parade without perhaps talking to your spouse or your partner about body armor? I mean, wh wh what do you make of the choices we've made as a country? Well, as Chris said, we have more guns than people in the United States. And I think it's really important to put this in context. We have almost 50% of all of the private weapons in the world in America. 50, almost 50%, right around 45 to 50% of every private weapon owned in the entire planet is in America. And I think what Pete's saying is really important. And I think politically, it has to move up to the very top of the list. Because this is mind-numbing. It is incredibly painful for us to watch these young men who are isolated, awkward, has spent a lot of time shooting people online. It is incredible that they can walk in a store, buy a military-grade weapon, and most importantly, fire off 70 rounds in a very short period of time. I mean, there are all kinds of gun sportsmen around this country. They don't need to fire at a deer 70 times in a minute. This high-capacity magazine, the ability to kill a lot of people quickly, the way that you stop one of these shooters is they don't have time 
to shoot as many people as is happening now with this frequency. And you listed all the people we can't go, where we can't go. How about me being afraid to take my grandchildren to school? That's how bad it's gotten. That's right. I mean, drop off became another um, terrifying ritual of being a parent in America. Um, Chris Jansing, the mayor, has become another, I'm sure, unwilling voice in this conversation about guns. Let me show you something that Highland Park's mayor said on the Today Show this morning about having the conversation we're having right now about guns. This tragedy never should have arrived on our doorsteps. And uh, as as a small town, everybody knows somebody who was affected by this directly. And of course, we're all still reeling. I don't know where the gun came from, but I do know that it was legally obtained. Um, and I think at some point this nation needs to have a conversation about these weekly events involving the murder of dozens of people with legally obtained guns. Just a harrowing um, reality for all of us that we just did something that hadn't been done in decades. And that was a bipartisan piece of legislation to do basically something small, but it, it amounted to more than what has been done in decades, which was nothing. But clearly, we're not the only country with six sociopaths, especially of the white male 18 to 22 year old variety. But we're the only country where massacres are so rapid that it feels like every week we have to marshal the four of you and have this conversation. Chris, what is it about the weariness that I'm hearing from your sources and the people you've interviewed that that should, you know, wake everybody up about how this has become so routine? Let me say a few stories that I didn't have a chance to earlier. Imagine being someone who has small children with them at a 4th of July parade, shots ring out, and to keep them safe, you leave those young children unattended in a dumpster. That's what one man had to do. Imagine being a father with a two and a half year old child who hands the child off to a complete stranger because his wife had been shot and he wanted to attend to her wounds. Now they were ultimately reunited but that's what happened. And as I was watching the local news this morning, and you mentioned Mr. Toledo, who was shot and killed in his wheelchair, the local report was that his family, who had brought him there, and this is graphic, and I apologize for that, but his family was sprayed with his blood. So one of the things that happens now when you talk to people who advocate for the end of readily available assault rifles is that the circle is getting wider and wider and wider. It's getting harder and harder to find someone who has not been directly touched by this kind of gun violence, whether it's uh, one of the reporters who is on this air often, whose sister lives just a couple of blocks away, whether it is someone who you know, uh, who lived in or around Uvalde, Texas, or whether it is someone, frankly, whose child has been traumatized, the two-and-a-half-year-old, two-and-a-half-year-old, who mom, after Uvalde, 
found the child standing on a toilet and who explained in, in a way that I guess a, a two and a half year old can that they had somehow seen that I guess someone, uh, one child in a school shooting had hidden in, in a in a stall and stood on the on the toilet so they could not be seen, that the shooter would know they were there. So the, the, the number of people who were touched by this kind of violence uh, is is getting larger and larger. And so the question then becomes, to Claire's point and to your question to Claire, do they bring more pressure to bear on members of Congress to do more than they just did with this latest package uh, uh, of new um, gun laws? Um, Tom, we should be just moments away from this latest press conference. Um, and this is a new town that's been targeted by a mass shooting. These are new victims whose loved ones have not yet buried them. This is a fresh horror. But for law enforcement, it is a daily reality of facing these weapons in the hands of criminals and sick sociopaths like the alleged shooter from yesterday. What is the view from law enforcement about the crisis that we're facing with access to guns and these kinds of guns specifically? Well, I think there's a whole host of things. I mean, I think first off, there's a feeling just of the overall sense of violence uh, in this country right now. Granted, uh, homicides and shootings are trending a little bit lower for the year so far. Tell that to the 13 people that were shot in New York just over the course of last night, four homicides, including one stabbing by homicide, uh, homicide by stabbing, I should say. Uh, tell that to the two police officers in Philadelphia who were shot last night uh, for just standing and, and trying to provide security for July four celebrations there and the people that had to flee from that. Uh, we have uh, dozens of people shot in other cities. There was a shooting in Gary, Indiana. I just got a message from my colleague, Jonathan Deans, uh, 10 shot there, um, uh, three fatally. And that's not even something that's part of our discussion today. That's not a, uh, a slight against the victims there, but it just talks about the totality of the violence that we uh, are seeing nationwide. And so I think you're seeing uh, police officers that are uh, at this point, quite weary of uh, the situations that they're involving themselves in, uh, quite weary of who is around them and what is around them. And, you know, we have to, uh, Pete Strzok talk, uh, talked about it from a standpoint, from an investigative standpoint, as far as the decisions that we need to make in this country, uh, what do we want to be looking into? Uh, for for police, what do we want our police to look about, uh, look like, and, and how do we want them to be presented at these types of public events? We're getting to a point... We, we did the barricades for the cars because of the ISIS threat. We did uh, we did have uh, police officers now at least have AR style weapons uh, in their in their vehicles. That's what occurs in, in many jurisdictions and an increasingly amount of them in this country. So now, do we want the police officers that are at parades to be in full body armor with AR-15s, with the Bearcat type trucks or military surplus type trucks around, uh, so that they're ready to respond? Uh, more quickly uh, in larger numbers with the same type of firepower that is being legally purchased and being brought to bear on them and innocent people like the gentleman who was in the uh, wheelchair who just happened to be at the parade with his family and was shot and killed to death. So those are the types of decisions that we need to make in this country. And it wasn't so long ago that people said, no, we don't want those heavy weapons teams. We don't want that continual SWAT presence. We don't want our tax dollars going to those type of vehicles. What are we willing to tolerate? 
tolerate. Uh, I'm a reporter. I can share with you the information. It's up to the people that are watching this to decide and to determine how they want their society to look like. But that's the direction that we're going, uh, because I think increasingly police officers are going to feel like, you know what, I'm vulnerable out here on the street uh, with a nine millimeter or a 40 cal uh, bullet in a uh, in a pistol versus an AR-15 style rifle with 25, 30 round magazines uh, with somebody shooting from an elevated place. So I think that's the first thing. I think law enforcement is increasingly frustrated we hear after these shootings continuously, oh, this was a troubled kid, or, oh, that was the person I thought was going to shoot up a school one day. Uh, when is somebody going to pick up the phone? Not that law enforcement's track record in that regard is perfect. Uh, there have been numerous instances where law enforcement has received information and not the right steps were followed uh, to take away a person's gun. I'm thinking of the situation that we recently had in Buffalo, New York, where a red, red flag law, excuse me, uh, could have been invoked there, uh, keeping weapons potentially away from that shooter. But there's just not enough of a dialogue of saying, okay, if the person next to you is posting something or you know somebody who's posting information that's concerning, uh, when do we bring see something, say something out of the Al-Qaeda era into the era of daily life uh, here in, uh, in this country? So those are all questions uh, that I pose, but those are all questions that are being talked about in law enforcement circles. And of course, the incredibly difficult balance of what is First Amendment protected speech, uh, one of the cornerstones of of our republic versus uh, what do we have now that we never had before? We, we've gone far beyond the printing press. Uh, we've gone into the internet world with this amplifier and loudspeaker uh, that is just overwhelming. And you really are picking your poison if you're somebody who's got a mental illness. Uh, am I into ISIS? Am I into far-right neo-Nazi extremism? Am I somebody who uh, just wants to glorify previous mass shootings and think, think that life is a video game? You have all those things at play here. I think um, our colleague Ben Collins has done tremendous work today pointing out the mm -hmm. extremist nature uh, of the postings that have been uh, put out there by this individual. And that's something I think we really need to pay a lot of attention to because uh, this goes far beyond very simple ideologies. Uh, and it is not as fringe as I think all of us hope that it is. Uh, it's something that I think we're going to have to pay attention to. There's just not enough cops not enough agents to look at all this material day to day, uh, again, removing the constitutional component uh, that Pete referenced. But Pete, to your, to your broader point, um, there are people that look at violence porn, whether it's of the ISIS variety or just run-of-the-mill domestic violent extremism in every country on the planet. We're the only country where I think all five of us have together had conversations about a massacre at an elementary school, a massacre at a grocery store in Buffalo, and regular mass shootings every single week. And, and, and at the root of that is the access to weapons of war. I, I wonder what you think about Tom's commentary about what cops are talking about. I mean, do you think we're too far out from people wanting to send I don't know. I mean, is it, is it time for people to make their own security decisions and not go to parades and not go to sporting events and not go to grow? I mean, what should people take from the frequency and the randomness and the inability, both for First Amendment reasons, Second Amendment reasons, to protect ordinary citizens from doing the most mundane of things? 
Well, Nicole, I think you, you highlight exactly the point. The one differentiator between us and the United States and the rest of the developed world is the easy access to weapons. And I absolutely understand what Tom was talking about, concerns about um, law enforcement and what they're facing on the street. Um, you know, I carried in my weapon in the FBI all, at different times an M4, Pete, which is a version Pete, of an Pete, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Let me pick this up with you as soon as they finish. They've had it. They're at the microphones. Let's listen. On July 4th, 2022, at approximately 10.15 a.m., Highland Park Police were on the scene of an active shooter in the area of Central Avenue and 2nd Street, Highland Park, while an Independence Day parade was in progress. The Lake County Coroner's Office was notified and responded to the scene. It is with a heavy heart that I bring to you the names of the victims of that tragedy. 64-year-old Catherine Goldstein of Highland Park, 35-year-old Irina McCarthy of Highland Park, 37-year-old Kevin McCarthy of Highland Park, 63-year-old Jacqueline Sundheim of Highland Park, 88-year-old Stephen Strauss of Highland Park, 78-year-old Nicholas Toledo Zaragoza of Morelos, Mexico. We have also been notified that there is a seventh victim that died at a hospital located outside of Lake County. Um, I will now give the microphone to the mayor of Highland Park, Mayor Nancy Rotering. The Highland Park community like so many before us, is devastated. It is impossible to imagine the pain of this kind of tragedy until it happens in your backyard. Our focus the last 36 hours has been on the perpetrator of this heinous crime. As we now put the names and faces of those lost yesterday, family, friends, guests, longtime residents of the Highland Park community, our focus shifts to the victims and those left behind. This crisis has devastated entire families and our community in a single moment, and we know it will take time to heal. On behalf of the community and the world that mourns alongside us, I offer loved ones of those who passed our condolences. I thank those who have organized prayer vigils to help support the weight of our shared sorrow. We've listed those on our website, and while we're hurting, we know that we will continue to come together and support each other as we always do in difficult times. We are Highland Park strong. Thank you, Mayor. There were some questions at our last press briefing about prior contacts that law enforcement may have had with Cremo III. Uh, we've done some research, gathered some reports, and I'm gonna relay some information from two prior instances that occurred here in Highland Park. Uh, the first was in April of 2019. Uh, an individual contacted Highland Park Police Department uh, a week after learning of Mr. Cremo attempting suicide. Uh, this was a delayed report, so Highland Park still responded to the residents a week later, spoke with Cremo, spoke with Cremo's parents, and the matter was being handled by uh, mental health professionals at that time. There was no law enforcement action uh, to be taken. It was a mental health issue handled by those professionals. The second occurred in September of 2019. A family member reported that Cremo 
said he was going to kill everyone and Cremo had a collection of knives. The police responded to his residence. The police removed 16 knives, a dagger, and a sword from Cremo's home. At that time, there was no probable cause to arrest. There were arrest. There were no complaints that uh, were signed by any of the victims. The Highland Park Police Department, however, did immediately notify the Illinois State Police of the incident. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, talking about the investigation itself. Uh, the community has been absolutely terrific with providing information to law enforcement investigators throughout this. Um, but we're, we're asking the community to, if they're able to dig a little deeper and, and recall some specific instances from the event uh, based on video surveillance recovered by our investigators, uh, we're very certain that there was a female witness who saw Cremo drop an object inside of a red blanket behind Ross's at 625 Central Avenue immediately following the shooting. We've not been able to identify this witness yet, but we're asking if you are the witness and you are hearing this, please call 800-CALL-FBI. Uh, investigators really would like to speak to you about this. We're also asking that anyone with any firsthand information about Cremo relevant to this investigation also call 800-CALL-FBI. Please keep in mind, though, we're asking for firsthand information that could be relevant, that could help investigators. We're not asking for third-party information or information heard through the grapevine, only if it's firsthand knowledge that you have. To update the, the victim count, including, including those that have perished, uh, there are approximately 45 uh, injured or deceased from this incident. At about 5.30 this evening, the state's attorney's office will be holding a press conference, and we anticipate an announcement of charges at that time. With that, we'll take some questions. So going to the September incident, obviously people are going to look at this and say, well, this could have been an opportunity to stop what we saw here. Uh, your view on that, and how are these things supposed to be handled? How do you stop a shooter if someone's calling police saying, hey, we have a problem? So the question is the, the response to the September incident. The police responded there. Police can't make an arrest unless there is probable cause to make an arrest or somebody is willing to sign complaints regarding the arrest. Absent of those things, the police don't have power to detain somebody. Now, if there is an issue where there is the necessity to um, involuntarily commit somebody to the hospital, that's an option. But that wasn't an option at that time. That It didn't fall in that category. But nonetheless, Highland Park Police did notify the Illinois State Police of that. The threat was directed at family inside of the home. So in, in order to purchase a gun legally in Illinois, one has to possess a FOID card. That's a process that is, is solely managed for the state police, and I'm not able to speak to that process. Chris, you mentioned how much the community has been helpful in this case with videos, with, with sending information to you guys. So many people I've been talking to are asking, how can this be prevented in the future? Given the amount of social media posts, the sort of disturbing content that he had posted, would you recommend that community members in this community or others flag police to, to that kind of information? You said you weren't aware of it beforehand. Were you, if you were aware of it, could this have prevented something like this, 
considering the red flag laws and, and other laws here in the state? So, so the question is essentially social media. If we had known about some of the posts, would we have investigated? Do we encourage the community to report those? And the answer is absolutely. If, if the public sees something that is concerning online with anybody, they should notify the social media network it's posted on. They should notify local law enforcement. And that's when we get involved and we conduct an investigation. Law enforcement is going to do everything they possibly can to ensure the community is kept safe. But if we don't know about it, it's it's hard for us to investigate. Under the red flag laws in the state, though, would this potentially have been enough for you to confiscate weapons or take some sort of action? So in, in the case of September, the knives that Cremo possessed, they were confiscated and they were secured for safekeeping. It's, the rifles and uh, considering the social media posts and the videos that we have now seen. So, so at that time, there was no information that he possessed any firearms, any rifles. Um, would that be enough if he's making threats? It's 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 a case by case basis. I don't want to speak broadly to the issue. Um, it depends on the circumstances. There are circumstances where law enforcement does have that authority to uh, uh, obtain a seizure order, uh, but it, it is situational dependent every single time. There's a report. There's a report that Cremo visited a synagogue here in town during Passover. Do you know anything about that? Can you speak to that? that that's nothing I know about at this time. purchased after that September incident. I, I don't have the exact dates. Uh, I believe it was in 2020 and 2021. You know we were discussing whether we had any additional information on motivation. You said not yet. Is there any new information in that regard? Investigators have been really tirelessly working since Crema was taken into custody, trying to determine motive. At this point, there there is no definitive motive that he had. Could you Is he talking? He has been talking to investigators. I don't have that information. Chris, the object that you said was dropped behind Ross, what, do you know what that was? It was the rifle, and ah. it was in a red blanket. Chris, do you have the information that he may have tried to, after the shooting, tried to check himself into a hospital, Lutheran General Hospital, have you referred any reports? No, we do not have that information. Just to follow up on the last that, uh, September incident, you said that involuntarily committing him was not an option. Can you explain that? What, what are the options for officers? Based on that time, based on those circumstances, that, that was not an option. It did not fall in that category. What would it require? It, again, it's it's case-by-case case specific. Were Irina and Kevin McCarthy, uh, husband and wife, uh, brother and sister, what's, what's their relationship? I'd have to get back to you on that. I don't know. Chris, do you have any information on handguns that you talked earlier about? Uh, how many were there? Were they legally purchased? Anything on that? The count, the sheer number? So he had purchased five. Five, five firearms. Five firearms, and that includes rifles and, and handguns as well. So the other three legally purchased, and they were handguns? There were a combination of which. I don't have the exact count. At least two rifles, uh, some uh, pistols, and possibly a shotgun. Those were seized at his father's home uh, pursuant to a search warrant yesterday. What was the size of the knife collection, and did he ever get it back after the incident? I would have to do a little research well, on that. time period were those five weapons purchased? Approximately a year. 
Is there any information about that seventh victim who, who passed away in age, perhaps? Not yet, but we are we are working on obtaining some some information. What county is that victim in? Cook. Cook. If the charges are being filed, as you said, probably around five o'clock, does that mean there will be an arraignment likely tomorrow morning? Or that would be my uh, yes. You don't know if, if, if charges are filed today. It's very likely he'll appear in bond court tomorrow morning. You know what's do you have more evidence about or more uh, explanation of what you found in the car you said the rifle was found in the blanket and what you found on the roof to get more specifics on that uh evidence technicians are collecting a lot of shell casings uh but as far as anything of evidentiary value that that's the extent in, in the car you said there was rifles in the car there was a rifle i would have to check and get back to you do you know where he was heading in that car with that second rifle he was. He drove around to a number of places. He drove into Wisconsin, then he came back into Illinois. That's when the alert person who recognized the vehicle description uh, from the press briefing called 911, and he was stopped. Chris, are you able to speak to any federal investigation, any possible federal indictments where he would be brought into the federal system? So the FBI, the ATF, our federal partners, the Department of Justice are, are very involved in this case. I, I can't speak for them. Uh, all I can say is they are on the ground here working with us in lockstep. And I could take two more. You know, where in Wisconsin? Going back to the September incident, um, the police notified state police. What was the follow-up from state police at that point? Um, and was there any monitoring given what had happened of his social media accounts then? And should there have been not? Do you want to speak to that? My name is Master Sergeant Delilah Garcia. I'm Public Information Officer, Deputy Chief. So basically in September of 2019, ISP did receive information from Highland Park um, Police Department. And at that time, uh, the individual uh, named in the report did not have uh, a FOID card or anything uh, to, to revoke or to review. So at that point, we that FOID part of it was our, our stance on that. And there was nothing done to say this person shouldn't be able to get, is there any way, mechanism to say this person shouldn't be able to get a FOID card in the future? any action like that taken? Well, at that time, basically, um, so he didn't have a pending application, so there was nothing to review at that time when we got that notification. We didn't know, and you know, a few months later, something else would happen. What would state police have to have done or have to have seen in order to try to involuntarily commit someone based on those facts? Or those sort of involuntary commit someone? Right. So the thing to you to follow up on after looking at the facts from that was that an option that you considered? Well, this person might need to be involuntary commit, involuntarily committed. Well, there was no FOID application at the time. Correct. I, but the lead came to you, right? This person had knives. Uh, obviously, the, the threat that was posed. So your role was only whether he had a firearm or not. Right. And so the state law, does it allow you to flag someone and say, hey, we're flagging this person, they should be... A, are you allowed to say this person can't get a FOID card in the future? More questions regarding that procedure from the state police will be forthcoming. Um, so we know there's going to be some questions directed to the state police on on procedure, how FOID card applications work, when a notification comes in from local law enforcement, that is much better answered by the state police. We, it's very hard to speak to their policies and procedures. One more. Where in Wisconsin he traveled to and how did you track? Was it I-Pass? I don't want to get into to how we know he was 
in Wisconsin, but we know he traveled to the Madison area before turning around and coming back to Illinois. Did his parents, did his parents, Last question. Did his parents ask, was his parents involved when the lives were taken from him? Did they report that he was threatening, and that's the reason why they came to the house with the knife? A, a family member reported that he was being threatening. So, so in other words, a family member reports the knives being there, but then he's buying guns and nobody said nothing. I'm not quite following your question. The police responded the police responded in September, okay, to this call. They responded, they took the knives out of the home, they filed the paperwork with the Illinois State Police. At that time there was no function to make an arrest. But there was the no are there watching him buy five or six or seven guns. I, I don't know if the parents were there. I can't thank speak you. to that. All right. All right. Thank you. We'll be back thank at five thirty. All right guys, just as a reminder, we're going to the west side of the scene at this point. Central We have been watching together this latest briefing by law enforcement officials in Highland Park, Illinois. Um some some headlines here to to quickly go over with our guests. Uh, this was the Lake County Sheriff, their their public information officer, uh, Chris Cavelli, Officer Chris Cavelli, who gave the most detailed accounting of the shooter's violent past, or at least questions of his potential for violence. He described an incident in September of 2019 in which 16 weapons, which included knives, a dagger, and a sword, were reported by a family member. They investigated, they went to the house. They described that the weapons were seized at the time, but it sounds, Pete Strzok, like like the, the loophole, if you will, is that there wasn't an application to purchase fire weapons at the time. So they couldn't revoke his ability to buy uh, weapons of war, AR-15 style rifles, of which he purchased at least two. He also purchased three other weapons, a combination of pistols and shotguns sometime in 2020 and 2021. Just talk about the limited tools available to law enforcement who know this is a violent individual who in September 2019 are at their house. He's so violent, he can't be safely in possession of swords and daggers. Yet two years later, he goes out and buys two AR-15 style rifles. Well, Nicole, it clearly points to a gap in uh, the red flag law of Illinois. Potentially, we need to figure out what was it transmitted, how that was handled and what their laws and procedures are. But again, I think if we start looking too much at what might or might not have been done from a red flag perspective, it takes away from the broader issue here. I mean, certainly, yes, there was a it appears to be a very real possibility that information was missed that should have been present. And if the system of the procedures didn't allow for that, they should be changed. But at the end of the day, if we allow this discussion, to suddenly become consumed about what red flag laws should be, what warnings should be. It takes away from the broader issue, which is for every person who has this collection of knives who say they're going to kill everyone, for everybody who has prior visits from the police because they tried to commit suicide or somebody heard that they were trying to commit suicide, there's going to be another one or two or five or 20 people who don't make statements like that, who still have the ability to access these guns. And again, to the point that Tom was making uh, before the news conference, I I think law enforcement absolutely across the United States are looking at every one of these incidents with a sense of dread. You know, again, I, I carried long guns. I carried an M4. And sometimes I carried a shotgun at other times solely based on the concern about what we might face on the other side, whether it was somebody armed with an automatic weapon or with body armor. And the difference is that, you know, 
Every agent goes through Quantico. Every policeman, every sheriff goes through the police academy. Every member of the military goes through basic training for months and months and months of training before they're ever allowed to have a weapon in the first place. And yet the people that they are potentially facing on the street are able to very easily go and get these same weapons without any training, without any licensing, without any insurance, without any weight period in many cases. And so there's this disparity that I am certain, and I know that from federal law enforcement officers all the way down to city and county police are looking at what they might face and trying to understand, okay, what do I need to be doing? How do I need to arm and protect myself to counter this threat, which, you know, is exactly what we saw play out uh, in Illinois just, uh, you know, yesterday. Chris, we also learned at this briefing that there are 45 victims. They include the injured and the deceased. Um, We know that this is still an active crime scene. They're looking for a female witness. It sounds like there's either another witness or some surveillance video. And what they're looking for that female witness to tell them about, they think that this female witness may have seen the shooter drop an item in a red blanket. The officer later revealed that it was the rifle wrapped in that blanket. Still, still a very active crime scene there. And that's what they said earlier today at the press briefing prior to this one. And and it's something we've seen play out over and over and over again, that there is just so much out there, so much information. But we do know that memories are fresh now, that the evidence is fresh now. So they're working in overdrive to get as much information gathered as they possibly can. The breadth of the technological ability that they have, whether it's looking at cameras or, uh, you know, going into his online. But in the end, they also want to talk to these individuals. And so this is going to be something that goes on and on. And I would just say that there are, for example, uh, investigations that continue to this day on shootings that were long since over, whether it was because the shooter was killed or because the shooter has been convicted. I think it took something like 10 years for a definitive study of uh, the Columbine shooting to be published. So that gives you an idea of how much information is out there. But one of the things that you see time after time after time is that people, once the initial shock wears off, they do want answers. They do want to know that everything that could be found about why this happened uh, has been found. But the additional thing, and that's what we were talking about before the press conference, is how do we see that this doesn't happen again? In 1999, it is seared in my brain that the last day that I was covering Columbine after many, many, many days of being there. Uh, A teacher from the school walked up to me in the parking lot to thank me for covering their story and saying, because I believe if it's out there, maybe this won't happen again. Maybe we can stop this. And that was 1999. So there are a lot of questions that law enforcement still has and a lot of answers that they and this community want answered long after we have gone on to the next story, Nicole. Um, and you do such a good job, Chris, making sure that we, we, we talk about them and we think about them in their entirety. Um, another person that helps us do that is our next guest, Shannon Watts, founder of the group Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Um, you have, I, I think, given voice and given, uh, I don't want to say purpose, because obviously no one who has lost a loved one in a mass shooting wants their purpose to be about this is the single most heinous day of their lives. But, but the truth is many of them do give of themselves and do turn their grief into action. We last talked, Shannon, when there was some real notable progress, but here we are again. And then what are your thoughts on a day like today? 
Well, you're exactly right. Survivors who wake up and do this work inspire me. They are heroic. And I, you know, wept yesterday for the people in, in that community in Illinois who were supposed to be celebrating freedom. And, and I think we should reflect on, you know, what does that even mean? You know, freedom for who? Freedom for the seven people and dozens more who were either killed or wounded at a parade? A freedom for who? For the three people and seven more who were killed or wounded in Gary, Indiana, which is just 60 minutes away from Highland Park? Freedom for who? The, the police officers who were shot while hundreds fled because gunfire rang out in Philadelphia? You know, between July 2nd and July 4th, there were at least 430 shootings across the country. There were at least 167 people killed, hundreds more wounded. You know, this is the reflection of who we are right now as a nation. We are not safe anywhere. And it is just so important to remember that we have the power to stop this. And that comes by out organizing and outworking and outvoting these radical extremists who have been writing our gun laws. This is the logical but horrific outcome of allowing gun lobbyists to write our gun laws. You know, Claire, it is sort of this this pit in the bottom of your stomach that, um, you know, to, to love and celebrate our country on the 4th of July was for many mixed with grief and horror and fear about the direction Republicans seem to want to take us either through their nominees on the Supreme Court and overturning a, a constitutional right that that women have enjoyed for 50 years or this extreme what Shannon's talking about, these extreme policies on access to weapons of war. What, 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 what were you feeling yesterday, Claire? Well, it is really hard to kind of grapple with the notion that we've gotten to the point that 40,000 people die every year that never make a headline, Nicole. Um, we're not talking about the young lives that were lost in Kansas City today or the lives that were lost in Gary, Indiana or in Chicago or New York or Philadelphia or Boston or small communities across this country where a young child gets a hold of a gun uh, that has not been stored safely. Our love affair with guns has turned in to a massive cause of death in this country. And I, I understand that it is kind of bred into our culture in some ways, this love affair of guns. But, you know, somebody on Twitter today had a sarcastic tweet that I thought was pretty clever. He said, um, a well-regulated militia went to the top of a building in a small community and took aim at strollers and, 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 and lawn chairs and massacred a lot of people. And the mindless thoughts and prayers were the only thing that came in afterwards. And I, I do think that that phrase, a well-regulated militia, is forgotten by Republicans and not embraced mm -hmm. enough by Democrats. We can do something about this. And Chen's right. It's about using your voice at the ballot box to get rid of people who think we have to have high-capacity magazines available to young men who are searching for some kind of fame uh, in all the worst ways you can possibly imagine. 
Claire McCaskill, Chris Jansing, Pete Strzok, and Shannon Watts, thank you all so much for being part of this all-too-common ritual, this, this tragedy of, of, of covering this epidemic. I'm grateful to all of you. Um, to all of you, please do not go anywhere today. There's much more news ahead. Breaking this afternoon, top Trump insiders, people like Rudy Giuliani and his bestie Lindsey Graham, were subpoenaed today by a Fulton County, Georgia grand jury investigating criminal interference in the 2020 presidential election. That is right after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. There is nowhere I feel safe. Nowhere. Do you know how it feels to have the President of the United States to target you? The President of the United States is supposed to represent every American. Not to target one. I just don't do nothing anymore. I don't want to go anywhere. I second guess. Everything that I do, um, it's affecting my life in a, in a major way, in every way, all because of lies. For me doing my job, same thing I've been doing forever. Hi again, everyone. It's five o'clock in the East. Those powerful, heartbreaking testimonies there by Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, election workers in Fulton County, Georgia, display the horrible consequences of the lies spread by Trump and his allies as they sought to discredit the 2020 ballot counting in a state that the ex-president lost. Whether there was potential criminal interference in Georgia's election by the ex-president has been under active investigation by the Fulton County District Attorney. Fannie Willis, who this spring impaneled a special grand jury to help move her investigation forward. And just this afternoon, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution was first to report that Fulton County's special grand jury issued subpoenas to key members of the ex-president's legal team, as well as a close ally of Trump's in Congress. Former Trump lawyers and legal advisors Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, Cleta Mitchell, and Kenneth Cheeseborough, a podcast host named Jackie Pick Deason, for real, and Senator Lindsey Graham all received subpoenas today. The AJC draws this important distinction, quote, the 23-person special grand jury has heard testimony in recent weeks from a parade of witnesses, including some who had direct contact with Trump and his associates. But Tuesday's subpoenas are the closest jurors have gotten to the inner circle of the former president. In Giuliani's subpoena, the grand jury specifically calls out his willful spreading of lies. It says this, quote, despite the lack of evidence, the witness, Rudy Giuliani, made additional statements both to the public 
and in subsequent legislative hearings claiming widespread voter fraud in Georgia during the November 2020 election and using the now debunked State Farm video in support of those statements. There is evidence that the witness's appearance and testimony at the hearing was part of a multi-state coordinated plan by the Trump campaign to influence the results of the November 2020 election in Georgia and elsewhere. An indication of how far and how deep investigators believe this plot went, as the AJC reports, quote, Willis launched the criminal probe into Georgia's elections in February of 2021, weeks after a recording of the Trump Raffensperger phone call leaked. She has since expanded the investigation to include the fake GOP electors, Giuliani's testimony to state legislators, and other efforts to pressure Georgia officials to act in Trump's favor. It's where we start the hour with some of our favorite reporters and friends. Atlanta Journal-Constitution political reporter Greg Bluestein is back. Also joining us, Washington Post national investigative reporter Carol Lennig, former U.S. attorney Barbara McQuaid, who is now a University of Michigan law professor here, and New York Times columnist Charles Blow joins us all, MSNBC political analyst. Um, Greg, we have talked over the last couple years about how Every crisis has a Georgia thread. This one, in this case, Georgia is the the beating heart. Tell us about this development today. Yeah, it's a major moment in the course of this investigation because it amounts to a direct effort to reach Trump's closest allies uh, in his efforts to overturn the election in Georgia. And not just that, but the scheme to set up sham electors in Georgia and perhaps other battleground states. Just like my colleague Tamar Hallerman reported, um, this is an effort to get to Trump's inner circle. We're not sure if it's going to work. You know, these are all attorneys. They could claim attorney-client privilege. And there's still a complex process to get them to testify. But it is a first step in what could be uh, an effort to end up compelling their testimony before this grand jury. And Greg, the grand jury process is, of course, secret by design. But some of the witnesses who've been before the grand jury have also appeared in the highly public, highly publicized January 6 hearings. Let me read from some of your reporting. Um, you're writing that the Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, several of his deputies, and Attorney General Chris Carr have already testified before the grand jury. Governor Brian Kemp, who rebuffed pressure from Trump to call a special session of the state legislature to reverse the election results, is also slated to give a video statement later this month. Talk about what they will hear from witnesses like Raffensperger and his deputies. Yeah, we're seeing a clear split. Obviously, some Republicans are more than happy to testify. Uh, Governor Kemp is going to give video testimony on July 21st. Others, like Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who's a Republican, and several former state lawmakers are trying to uh, hold back their testimony. They're trying to fight their testimony. Uh, We'll see how that plays out. But they'll be asked a number of questions. Uh, We're not exactly sure what the process will be. Um, The judge right now is working out basically a framework for what questions they can be asked and what they they might not be asked. Um, But in general, we're going to hear more about what the grand jury is narrowing in on as um, some of these details leak. And what we're hearing from Democrats who have on before the grand jury is that increasingly the testimony is focusing on Rudy Giuliani's role in this over, overall plot. Rudy Giuliani's lawyers have um, always been known to be busy. Um, Carol Lennig, one of the most dramatic aspects of the public phase of the January 6 hearings is the devastating evidence of corruption, of an attempt to overthrow the results of the 2020 election, all offered by lifelong Republicans who in 2020, when given an option between Joe Biden and Donald Trump for president, they all chose 
Donald Trump. Let me show you how one such Trump uh, voter, Brad Raffensperger, uh, sounded during the January 6th hearing under questioning from Congressman Adam Schiff. Mr. Secretary, is there any way that you could have lawfully changed the result in the state of Georgia and somehow explained it away as a recalculation? No, the numbers are the numbers. The numbers don't lie. We had many allegations and we investigated every single one of them. What was amazing about that, Carolinic, is it's the same thing that DOJ did under Bill Barr and then under Jeffrey Rosen. I mean, one of the most incredible things that the January 6th committee has revealed is how many people who derive their salaries from taxpayers investigated Donald Trump's BS fraud claims that were all, in Trump's own telling, discovered on the Internet. He tells some DOJ officials, I'm just better at the Internet than you are. What do you make of this, it seems like, accelerated phase of the Fulton County criminal investigation. Well, in some ways, this this investigation has been very slow moving from the start. So I think accelerated is the right word to use to refer to it now, especially because the grand jury subpoenas for some of the testimony of specific individuals are for people out of state. And that requires a judge to say, yeah, you got good reason to get the testimony of these individuals. It's another hurdle um, that that the district attorney has, has fairly easily met. And I think that it's so smart of you to focus on the pattern, right? Lots of times when you're covering something in real time, you don't see every little piece and how it overlays. But the way in which Rudy Giuliani as part of Team Trump, as sort of the, the tip of the spear, worked Georgia legislators. At the same time, President Trump was working the Department of Justice. You know, he was telling the top people, what do you mean there's no fraud? I've got this video from Rudy. It shows these these um, valets, the valises of, of uh, suitcases full of ballots underneath a table pulled out at the last minute. And his acting deputy attorney general says to the president, which must have taken a lot of bravery, uh, Mr. President, that video doesn't show that. Your friend, Mr. Giuliani, has only shown a portion of the video. If you watch the whole thing, none of that is true. That is not what happened. And you need to watch that. At the same time in Georgia, Rudy Rudy Giuliani is still pushing that nutty narrative with the Georgia legislatures, and the president is aware and on alert from all of the senior people who advise him, this is bogus, this is nuts, and we can't change the results for you. In fact, I remember when the president called uh, Mr. Raffensperger, one of the most striking things, again, a moment of bravery, a Georgia state election official turns to the president of the United States and says, I know, Mr. President, I know that's what you want to believe, but the numbers and the data are not with you. They don't show that. Uh, it's it's sort of sort of shocking how often the president was told this and seemed to continue to push on, as did the rest of his team. Yeah, I mean, to Carol's point, actually, we just got some breaking news um, that I want to tell our viewers about, as well as all of our guests. The January 6th Select Committee has just now made public their intentions to hold another public hearing next Tuesday. That is one week from 
today. They were expected to have additional hearings in July. It was last week's um, surprise testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson that was not expected. And and by their own admission, that was the result of new information they received. I want to ask you, Barbara McQuaid, about any potential intersection between this criminal investigation and the evidence being churned and disclosed by the January 6th committee. I don't know that there's been a more gutting human moment than watching the the two women, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, testify about the abuse and really being hunted by Trump supporters because of a lie and the lies about election fraud, which were disproved by Trump's own Republican allies in the state and at DOJ. Yes, that was some of the most compelling testimony that we've heard during these hearings. And absolutely, they are right at the center of Donald Trump's attacks. He calls them out by name in that phone call, which then got a lot of publicity, uh, knowing that he was doing it with complete reckless disregard for the truth and putting them in harm's way. Now, you know, when we've got these uh, uh, bounty hunters or whatever they were who showed up at Shea Moss's grandmother's house, I don't know that we can say that Donald Trump is legally liable for that, but he's certainly morally liable for that. When you call out someone as your enemy, knowing that you've got all kinds of devout followers out there, you have to know that you're putting her life in jeopardy. But I think these two threads are coming together very much. And there's concern there that one is going to step on the other, that uh, one is going to reveal testimony that the other would prefer not yet be revealed so that they could uh, collect evidence quietly and not permit uh, witnesses to get their stories straight. But I think that between the January 6th committee, uh, Fannie Willis in uh, Fulton County and the Department of Justice, it's inevitable that their efforts are going to clash. One hopes that they are coordinating to avoid having problems that they create for each other. Charles, I want to show you two things. I want to put up again the list of people who were subpoenaed today by Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis. They include Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, Cleta Mitchell, Ken Kenneth Cheeseborough, um, a podcast host named Jackie Pick Deason, Senator Lindsey Graham. But there's a notable name not on the list. It's Donald Trump. Here he is on January 2nd, 2021, trying to shake down Brad Raffensperger for the exact amount of votes he needed to flip the state. Let me play that for you. Why wouldn't you want to find the right answer, Brad, instead of keep saying that the numbers are right? So, look, uh, can you get together tomorrow? And, Brad, we just want the truth. It's simple. And the, tr- the real truth is I won by 400,000 votes, at least. So what, so what are we going to do here, folks? I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. It feels like an insult to Tony Soprano to call that Tony Soprano-esque, but there he was trying to shake down Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Do you think this investigation ultimately um, includes him and, and his requires his testimony, Charles? Yes, I'm not an attorney, but, I, you know, the way these things work is that they work their way up. And so this is one level of subpoenas that go out to people beneath him so that by the time you actually question the president, you have had testimony from as many people below him and connected to him as you can possibly get. I also am struck in that uh, and I've always been struck in that recording about how the former president talks about the truth itself. And this is a person who has you know, lied at a scale and at a rate that was unprecedented and it a person who has no respect for no kind of sense of what truth 
means because when you live in a world where you bend it, where fraudulence is part of how you operate your life, he actually believes that if he looks close enough, you can probably find some fraud because in his life, fraudulence was part of how you operate it. And so he looks at the world, including these elections and says, the truth is fungible. It is malleable. It's like Plato. Like if you play around with it enough, you can make it into whatever shape you want it to be in. That does not work well or at all in a court of law. And so now that you're getting to a grand jury, none of that matters anymore. This is all on the record. If they get testimony from these, these witnesses, they, as we already said, there will be some pushback because some of them are lawyers. But if they get testimony, that's testimony. It's on the record. If you perjure yourself, you perjure yourself. That is a problem for you. It's a legal problem. So there's all the incentive to actually tell the real truth and not the Donald Trump version of the truth. This is not an alternative facts universe when you're in front of a grand jury. Such a good point. At the moment, Donald Trump does not have any any pardon power and it wouldn't work in Georgia anyway. One of the Trump acolytes or Trump sycophants who makes a cameo in the Georgia criminal probe is Lindsey Graham. Greg, what is the feeling on the ground about Lindsey Graham trying to meddle in the effort on Donald Trump's part to overturn his defeat in the state? Yeah, that news, uh, that little snippet came out a little later after the after the infamous Raffensperger call that Lindsey Graham had also apparently uh, pushed Brad Raffensperger to find illegal votes, to try to find um, find a way for, for Donald Trump to win. So we're not sure um, how extensive his efforts are. His his uh, camp, his office hasn't even confirmed that he has been subpoenaed quite yet. But certainly it was looked at as more out of state meddling, um, but not just Democrats, but also Republicans who are upset about the uh, the efforts to overturn Georgia's election. And Carol, I mean, this is what the subpoena says about Lindsey Graham, who is known to enjoy, um, you know, helping Trump out on the golf course. But now after the subpoena is known to have helped him try to steal Georgia, the court finds that the witness, Lindsey Graham, based on the substance and timing of the telephone call he personally made to Georgia's secretary of state, Brad Raffensperger, is a necessary material witness in this investigation. The witness possesses unique knowledge concerning the substance of the telephone calls, the circumstances surrounding his decision to make the telephone calls, the logistics of setting up the telephone calls, and any communications between himself, others involved in the planning and execution of the telephone calls, the Trump campaign, and other known and unknown individuals involved in the multi-state coordinated efforts to influence the results of the November 2020 election in Georgia and elsewhere. Finally, the witness, Lindsey Graham's anticipated testimony is essential in that it is likely to reveal additional sources of information regarding the subject of this investigation. This sounds to me, as someone who has dealt with a lot of reporting around and about phone records in my career, like they have a whole lot of phone records and perhaps even audio recordings of potentially even this witness. We know that Mr. Raffensperger has testified. What, what does this sound like to you, Carol Lenning? Well, I share your gut instinct, Nicole, about phone records, at least metadata. At least they've gotten a trail of who pinged who on these respective days. It doesn't take a lot of work for a prosecutor to get that information, and it would be a sort of a basic building block for this investigation. But I think as well, I'll add another two cents. Lindsey Graham will be put in a 
pressure cooker as a result of this subpoena, because no longer is it just whether or not my voters and supporters, my loyal base for getting reelected as a senator, no longer is it whether or not they like how I've handled my relationship with Donald Trump. Now there's an investigation into a felony, a felony of inter interfering in a state election. And it has serious consequences. And it will amp up the temperature, the boiling point, uh, if mm -hmm. you will, underneath Lindsey Graham's feet to answer questions. Oh, so so who'd you talk to before you called Brad? Was it Donald Trump by chance? Did Donald Trump tell you what you might want to say to Brad? You know, okay. it, it seems like I, I can make up that conversation and, it, and I don't like to be speculative. But that if I were the district attorney, that's what I'd be asking. And I'd probably have some metadata to back up the reason I wanted to ask that question. Yeah, I mean, and there are certainly enough clues to make us ask these questions in the subpoena itself. Um, Greg Bluestein, thank you for starting us off with this breaking news today. If you learn anything else in the next 45 minutes, just wave and we'll bring you right back on. The rest of the panel sticks around. When we come back, a newly unearthed piece of evidence that is now in the hands of the January 6th committee. We will play it for you. It's from an unbelievably bizarro alternate reality. It's a documentary called Unprecedented. It chronicles the Trump family like way inside their comfort zone as they sought to cling to power and carry out a coup against the United States government. We'll talk about where the committee's investigation will go with its next hearing now announced for next Tuesday. Plus, why so many of the lawyers who tried to help the disgraced twice impeached ex-president cling to power are being punished for their role in subverting American democracy. Brand new reporting on that to tell you about. And WNBA superstar Brittany Griner makes an appeal to President Joe Biden, telling him that she is terrified she'll be stuck in Russia forever. We're bringing the latest on the efforts to bring her home. Deadline White House continues after a quick break. Please stay with us. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Hi everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. About two weeks ago, we learned about a filmmaker named Alex Holder. We learned that he testified before the 1-6 Select Committee. We also learned that he turned over 11 hours of footage he had for a docu-series called Unprecedented. It followed the Trump family very closely ahead of and in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Today, we got a snippet of those hours of footage that are now in the hands of the committee investigators. Here's a trailer for Unprecedented, obtained exclusively by Politico.
Okay. Do you see this line? Tired. I did uh, evangelicals for Trump, then I did Indian Americans for Trump, then I did Asian Pacific yeah, Americans for Trump. My father, the people's president. We will make liberals cry again. I don't think you want to have the water in the picture, right? You can take it. So as a family, we've done 55 events in 48 hours. The campaign basically was a family operation. I'm washing my hands after giving a bunch of fist bumps, you know. Is that okay? Yeah, I might as well take the table. Maybe I should just, like, Magatsu, have the, like, dog on my lap. <laughs> Can I borrow your dog? Can I borrow Baka? <laughs> Stroking That's the dog. Put the table back and put the water on the table without the thing on top of it. This is a business. Oh, this feels good. Where you have to be in it for the right reasons. This is a fraud. On the American public. For the sake of this country, we're going to get these guys. Let's kick some ass! Let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. They threw the damn match. Get the roaches out, all of them. When you manipulate people, that has consequences. Donald Trump was able to use his children as the embodiment of Trump, the brand. He's an unconventional person. He believes that everything that he's doing is right. How does that look? Trump has always looked at his project as a dynastic one. They have a base, they have their own base. People have no idea how hard this family works. It's part of my base. This is mine! Right? Let's go. Do you miss me yet? Do you miss me? We're back with our panel, which is a good thing because I have no words. Carol Enig, uh, Charles Blow, Barbara McQuaid. Um, if I don't see any hands, I'm going to call on you first, Charles Blow. Um, what, what do we think the panel might glean from what appears from the trailer like a promotional video for the family coup? Yeah, I, I'm not sure what evidence will be. Uh, in this video that would be useful to either the January 6th committee or even to people in, uh, investigating Georgia. But what it is, is revelatory once again about the family, about Trump and his family, which is that this is a man who has spent his entire life manipulating media. If you were a, per, a citizen of New York City for a long time, that's what Trump did, right? So he, but it was the gossip pages uh, or inflating income to, uh, on the Florida financial basis and make the list. He, he was able to manipulate or he would, you know, uh, have a pseudonym and call in and pretend he was someone else on behalf uh, of the Trump organization. That's what he did. He, it, it, you know, it strikes people sometimes like, why would he do this? He keeps doing it because he still believes that he has the charm. He has the ability to manipulate. He has sat for interviews for books. They were not flattering because they told the truth. Uh, and then he comes out and says, well, these people are horrible and they lied. And this is not what I said. It's not what I meant. And blah, blah. He still believes that he is the king of this. He is the king of distortion. He is the king of manipulation. He's the king of people in those interactions. He sees that as a struggle and a battle. And he always believes that if he sits across from someone, he will eventually 
win. It's just that it doesn't work that the cameras capture what the cameras capture. The pins capture what the pins capture. You say it, we write it down. That's what this how it's gonna work. And you're not gonna be able to go out with every viewing or with every book and explain that that's not what you said or what you meant, because in fact it has been captured. So we know, Barbara McQuaid, that one of the things that was gleaned from this documentary filmmaker, uh, Mr. Holder's footage, was that Ivanka Trump is full of it. She's either lying uh, to the 1-6 committee when she says she always believed Bill Barr. Bill Barr was gone by December 19th. She says she believed him at the time. Or she's lying to the documentary filmmaker who's making the, you know, Trump family video montage or the the moving Christmas card, whatever the heck they thought this was on their way out the door. What would prosecutors be mining this nine hours of footage for? Oh, this could be a potential goldmine, Nicole. Um, you know, when you're prosecuting a case, you have to look not only for evidence that proves the case, but you also have to disprove the negative, that the person uh, was acting in good faith, that they did not believe that they were committing a crime when they were doing the act. So it's useful just to look at it uh, for what it's worth. But I've also found that people in power are surprisingly uh, risky, surprisingly arrogant, and will say things that you just can't believe they said out loud uh, that they thought would be cut or for footage that might even be included in the documentary. And so I think it's very useful to watch all of it and listen to all of it. But of course, with a grain of salt, as you said, Ivanka Trump apparently made contradictory statements. Um, I am reminded of the old Corey Lewandowski line that it's not a crime to lie to the media. So I would put stock in what she said under oath over what she might have said in a documentary. Carol Lennig, I won't ask you to share with us what you found weird, but I'm going to share that between Ivanka, can you see this line to can I steal your puppy and misappropriate it to Trump's like insane obsession with the cup of water? I don't know if that's Rubio baggage, but it really does show them as 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 really um, let's see the kindest word I can use eccentric. Yes. And I just want to say, I also found the whole line issue interesting, you know, obsession with like what, where, what are waste looked like at that moment. But let's be clear, all of us are on television right now. And I'm sure, you know, Barbara and I did our mascara right before. So we were thinking about the way we would <laughs> be seen I. as well. <laughs> Correct. And so, however, I find the Trump moment the most fascinating because we wrote, Philip Brucker, my co-author and I wrote about a moment in which President Trump was a very new president and obsessed with a documentary that was being done by Alexandra Pelosi. He didn't really understand that it was Nancy Pelosi's daughter when he agreed to it. But the whole <laughs> idea was people read <laughs> would read like portions of the most important paper of the founders, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution. They'd read portions of it out loud. And I, I think you know this, Nicole, that the president was obsessed with how his skin would look in the, in the documentary. He was very worried and flustered. And he had trouble saying the words that he was already practiced at to read the Constitution. He had these really difficult moments where he would say, cut, let's do that again. You know, no, 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 no. I, I stumbled over that. Let's do this over. Whereas, you know, Dick Cheney, George Bush, uh, Mike Pence read their sections aloud because they were familiar with the document. They knew right. what the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were, and they'd read it in school and, and understood the American experiment. They understood what, what America 
blossomed from. Trump had no familiarity with it. And this video, this documentary about Alex Holder brings me back to that moment, understanding what happened when Donald Trump was asked to talk about something he had no genius to manipulate, no way to maneuver, no yeah. way to present himself as as brilliant, as brilliant because he didn't know anything about it. Yeah, it's so, you know, there, everyone has their like moment. They realize that he was making everything up all the time. For me, it was when John Heilman asked him about the Bible and what his favorite verse was. And yeah, I, I like all of it. Every page. I love it. Um, obviously not familiar with it at all. Uh, Carol Lennig, Barbara McQuaid, Charles Blow, thank you so much for starting us off today. When we come back, there is brand new reporting on how so many of the attorneys who helped the twice impeached disgrace ex-president slash coup plotter try to overturn the will of the American people have so far gone undisturbed and unpunished. That's next. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Today's news out of Fulton County, Georgia, notwithstanding, one of the primary frustrations for people familiar with the aftermath of Donald Trump's failed coup attempt has to do with consequences, or rather the seeming lack thereof, anywhere. How could so many people be party to an anti-democratic illegal scheme and be allowed to simply go about their business, racking up more business? Not only that, new reporting from Politico suggests that some in Trump's orbit have leveraged their criminality into new profitable opportunities from our good friend Heidi Presbella's new reporting. Quote, in total, at least 16 lawyers who represented plaintiffs in five federal lawsuits promoting Trump's baseless election fraud claims in the key battleground states of Michigan, Georgia, Wisconsin and Arizona remain in good standing or at least have no record of disciplinary action with their respective bar associations or licensing authorities. That's according to a Politico review. Fourteen of them have since engaged in additional work in support of the election fraud conspiracies or conspiracists behind Trump's attempt to remain in power despite losing the election to President Joe Biden. These include defending accused January 6 rioters, consulting for partisan election audits or audits or partaking in advocacy or legal cases, sowing doubts about the integrity of the nation's elections, Politico found. Our good friend, Heidi Presbella, joins us now. Heidi, it's so good to see you. And of course, because it's you, this is an extraordinary piece of reporting. Tell us more. Yeah, Nicole, the legal battles around 2020 were really key in helping former President Trump further his election fraud conspiracy theories. And the names that we most often hear associated with that are Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell. But there's this whole cadre of attorneys that were the lead attorneys who were pushing these suits in the states that Trump used to make his baseless claims. And what I found was that this network remains really active. Uh, most of them have not been penalized. There were some sanctions issued in Michigan, but that's under appeal right now. And the elections experts and legal attorneys that I talked to, Nicole, say they're just they're just concerned about a repeat of this, because when you look at the amount of money that was raised, we're talking millions and millions of dollars uh, by some of these PACs associated with the president and his supporters and Sidney Powell, it, it really pales in comparison to some of these sanctions orders. So there's just a disincentive there. Um, and some of the experts I talked to are, are pushing 
uh, for additional reprimands, additional consequences. For instance, we saw Rudy Giuliani lost his license or it was suspended in New York. It was suspended in Washington, D.C. for his role in advancing some of these cases. Um, but we haven't seen that in other cases. And so it is the second rung of attorneys that some of these groups, like the um, outside group called the 65 Project, 65 being for the number of lawsuits that were filed in the states, it's starting to go after some of these other attorneys because they're concerned, Nicole, about what may come of this if there aren't greater consequences. At the same time, it's really important to all of these cases to prove that these individuals knew that what they were doing was fraudulent, right? When they filed these cases. But in this case, the attorneys that I looked at were only the attorneys that were involved in the so-called Kraken cases. If you recall, Sidney Powell said that she was going to release the Kraken um, and file these lawsuits. So these attorneys were all of the attorneys that were involved in those cases that can be tied to her. And 14 of them, of the 16, are, are still actively involved in, like you said, representing right-wing extremist groups like the Oath Keepers that were involved in the insurrection, uh, representing in the Wisconsin audit case that's still ongoing, as well as in Michigan, a sheriff who became notorious because he tried to impound voting machines and is still trying to do his own election fraud investigation, Nicole. Heidi, do you think that anything could change if a conspiracy is charged by DOJ? I think that each one of these cases will be looked at potentially individually. The problem is that we don't have a lot of insight. We lost Heidi Fresbella there, but not before we got to hear her incredible reporting. Um, it's a thread of her reporting that we will stay on top of. Heidi Fresbella, thank you so much for joining us. When we come back, we will tell you about a very, very powerful development in the Brittany Griner case. A terrified Brittany Griner appealed directly to President Joe Biden to help free her from a Russian prison. What it could take to bring the basketball superstar and wife and friend and team member home. That's after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Everything about this is a calculation for me because I have to walk the fine line of, you know, harm versus help when it comes mm. to my wife right now. So as much as I want to, you know, um, advocate for her and push for, you know, our governments do everything, you know, I also have to take into account that she's in a position where she could be harmed um, mm -hmm. also um, by any and everything I do. And so um, it's, a, it's a thin line to walk in initially, you know, I was told, you know, just we're going to try and reserve, you know, we're going to try and handle this behind scenes and, you know, let's not raise her value and, you know, stay quiet. And, you know, I did that. And, and, and respectfully, we're, we're over 140 days at this point. That does not work. And so I will not be quiet anymore. 
That was Sherelle Greiner. She is the wife of WNBA star Brittany Greiner talking this morning about the change in her public posture as her wife, Greiner, remains imprisoned in Russia. Greiner and her loved ones are now turning up the pressure publicly on the Biden administration. Just yesterday, a letter from Greiner was delivered to President Joe Biden at the White House begging him to do anything to bring her home. Greiner says in the letter that she is terrified. Quote, as I sit here in a Russian prison, alone with my thoughts and without the protection of my wife, family, friends, Olympic jersey, or any accomplishments, I'm terrified I might be here forever. Greiner, the seven-time WNBA All-Star, was detained near Moscow in February, one week after Russia's invasion and war in Ukraine began, and is currently facing up to 10 years in prison in Russia for alleged drug smuggling charges. Joining us now, Michael Crowley, New York Times diplomatic correspondent. You know, I I read the letter, I understand, and and we've all tried to cover this. In the beginning, it was very difficult to understand really the details of the case, the details of her condition and status. I I wonder now if, if, if there's any more information or evidence that the charges themselves are fabricated. Thanks, Nicole. You know, we, we just don't know. Um, the, the problem is that when it comes to the Russian legal system, you have to be willing to believe anything. You know, the Russians will fabricate plant evidence, gin charges up. So, you know, we it's totally reasonable to assume the worst, but we just can't know for sure. So that, so that is a complicating factor here. Though having said that, on some level, it, it may not even be relevant. You know, the State Department has determined that Griner is wrongfully detained, which means that above and beyond whatever crime she might have committed if she did commit one, the State Department is saying that this situation is not on the level and that it requires special diplomatic intervention because of the way the Russians are handling it. What are the options being discussed behind closed doors at the State Department and I presume at the White House as well now, Michael? Well, Nicole, you know, U.S. officials are incredibly guarded about talking about these situations. You know, their feeling is that talking about it in public is counterproductive. And, you know, and as we saw, they they counsel relatives and loved ones of people who are detained that the wisest strategy is to keep a low profile. So the U.S. doesn't want to do these negotiations in public. You know, I think it's clear that when you have these circumstances, the most obvious thing that you consider is the potential for prisoner trades. You know, there is a track record of that kind of thing happening. And in fact, we had a prisoner exchange with Russia in April when the U.S. released a convicted Russian drug smuggler. He was a pilot who was flying a plane with drugs in exchange for Trevor Reed, who was a former U.S. Marine from Texas Uh, who had been imprisoned in Russia for uh, a few years on charges of assaulting police officers. Um, The Russians have floated the possibility of exchanging Griner through their media, I should say, not through official Russian government channels, um, for Victor Boot, who is a uh, notorious Russian arms dealer currently serving a federal prison sentence in the U.S. But U.S. officials are not really uh, engaging with that scenario or talking about it as something they're taking seriously. Is And I know we talked about the nature of that swap being incredibly disproportionate, that this is a hardened criminal who's done a whole lot of harm in the world. We don't know that Brittany Griner is remotely guilty of what she's been charged with by the Russians. 
just talk about, just widen the lens for me and explain the Russian strategy for, for trying to free. I mean, do they target high profile Americans for the express purposes of trying to free some of their notorious hardened criminals? Yeah, you know, I'm told by Russia experts who've been watching how the Kremlin operates for decades that you know, this is exactly the kind of thing the Russians do, that they intimidate and harass Americans, and indeed they arrest them looking for concessions from the American side. A number of American adversaries have done this over the years. Um, Iran is a prime culprit that, this, that U.S. officials often point to as engaging and essentially, you know, hostage bargaining and, and diplomacy. Um, and, and, and so you have to wonder whether that is what the Russians set out to do here. We, we don't know whether Griner might have been targeted. In other words, mm-hmm. did the Russians kind of luck into this, so to speak, because by their account, a drug sniffing dog barked at one of her bags at a Moscow area airport, or, you know, did they see her coming through the system and say, this would be a good person to grab? We, we don't know that. But um, this is how the Russians play. And yes, they they would love to get Victor Boot out. But as you said, um, you know, it, it's very disproportionate. Victor Boot is a notorious arms dealer. Brittany Griner maybe had some vape cartridges with hashish oil. That's a tough one for one trade unless you want to include someone else uh, for the Americans, uh, namely potentially Paul Whelan, a former Marine currently imprisoned in Moscow. He's been there for a few years. Some experts I talked to said that could be a possibility. Again, the U.S. government is not saying uh, in any detail whether that's something they might consider. And it is. I mean, to, to be fair, the, the, the calculation of the U.S. government is is a really difficult one. They, they view that this puts Americans in danger all over the world. Um, you understand it better than anyone. Michael Crowley, thank you for taking some time to talk to us about it. We're really grateful. We'll stay on it. A quick break for us. We will be right back. I'm proud to finally award our highest military recognition, the Medal of Honor, to each of you, one posthumously. It has been a long journey to this day for those heroes and their families. And more than 50 years have passed, 50 years since the jungles of Vietnam, where as young men, these soldiers first proved their medal. But time has not diminished their astonishing bravery, their selflessness in putting the lives of others ahead of their own and the gratitude that we as a nation owe them. President Joe Biden just this afternoon bestowing our nation's highest military honor on four Army veterans for their heroism during the Vietnam War, going far and above the call of duty. The names of those Medal of Honor recipients today, Specialist 5 Dwight Burdell, Retired Major John Duffy, Specialist 5 Dennis Fuji, and Staff Sergeant Edward Kanoshiro awarded posthumously. Today and every day, we are all thankful to them for their service and for their sacrifice. A quick break for us. We will be right back. Thank you so much for letting us into your homes during these extraordinary times. We are grateful. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday.